Thank you, Dave. The theme for Lucy's sermon this morning is love in action. And the text is taken from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him or on her, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love with words or tongue. Sorry. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The word of the Lord. I'm very happy to share with you. Preaching opportunities for me are a combination of nerve-wracking and blessing. Nerve-wracking because, at least for me, it doesn't come totally natural. Um, I don't do it every week. So it's something I have to work at. It takes some time. Um, and guess what? I find public speaking just a little bit nerve-wracking too. <laughs> Am I alone in that or there's some others out there? Okay, good. <laughs> but it's a blessing because I get so much out of it. It's an opportunity to look at a passage in depth in a way that I normally don't have a chance to do. So while you might say, thank you for serving in this way. I say, thank you for letting me serve in this way. Um, I have been blessed through studying First John, and I hope it's a blessing to you and an encouragement to you as well. Love in action. The section of First John that I'm preaching from today is just part of a whole epistle or letter written by the Apostle John. And John is very clear in communicating the purpose of the letter. In fact, if you read the whole book, you will see, I write to you, not once, but eight times in the book of 1 John. So he's not leaving it to chance that you get his purpose. Uh, he includes a summary statement at the end, um, near, near the end of chapter 5, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants the readers to know that they can be sure that they belong to God. That might seem a little bit odd to us, but John was writing this in response to a false teaching at the time that the readers are encountering, a false teaching or philosophy called Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word knowledge. Gnostics believe that only certain people had special knowledge of truth 
and that ordinary Christians, like us, did not or could not possess it, and that salvation came through some sort of mystic knowledge. I hope you don't mind me calling you ordinary. I'm putting myself in that too. <laughs> so you can see why John wanted to reassure his readers that they could know and be sure of their salvation. The word know or recognize is used almost 40 times in the book of 1 John. So he clearly felt it was important. But how could they know and how can we know today? John offers four tests in this letter, themes which he repeats throughout. I'm going to go through them quickly and then hone in on one, one in particular, which is covered in chapter 3, 11 to 18. The first test is a truth test. There are some things that you must believe about Jesus. Another tenet of Gnostic doctrine was that Matter or physical things are evil and spirit, spiritual things, they're good. Matter can't be good. Spirit can't be evil. So they can't mix. It's like where you have ocean and river water meeting sometimes and you see a clear line. Those things are not, they don't mix. Those waters don't mix, right? So they felt like matter and spirit don't mix. They therefore denied the humanity of Jesus. Even today, some people may not feel it's important to believe that Jesus was born, that he lived and died as a man. He was human. But 1 John 4.2 says, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So if you acknowledge Jesus was human, that's from God. The second test is a righteousness test. Do we keep God's commandments? He's not talking about being perfect or sinless. In fact, he says the opposite in part of the book, that we, we can't say that we've never sinned. But there, that there is forward progress or a pattern in a believer's life towards righteousness. We're moving that way. And the third test is the love test. John states that loving one another is proof that we belong to God. It might go without saying, but I will mention it anyway. John uses the word brother or brothers. He means it in a more universal sense, okay? Which would include sisters in Christ. So our siblings. He's talking about our fellow children of God, male or female. In chapter 3, verse 23, John writes, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And 4, 7, and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And John 3.10, which is a segue to the passage we will look at this morning, it combines the righteousness test and the love test. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. And the fourth test is the spirit test. Is the Spirit of God inside of us? 
chapter 324 says, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So let's go back to test number three, which was the love test, or we could also call it the relational test. I'm going to ask three questions this morning, and you can take those as personal questions to yourself, and I take them as questions to myself as well. Do you see the importance of this love, the love for one another? Do you see it? Do you see the importance? Verse 11, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. John is called the disciple that Jesus loved. He was part of Jesus's inner circle, yet he doesn't have anything new to share with us or his readers. This is the gospel that has been shared with believers since the beginning. Their whole entire Christian lives, love has been preached to them. He repeats it over and over again. Why? Because it's important. Love one another. Repetition, it can be how we learn, right? We learn more as we repeat things or hear things over and over. God knows that, and the apostles knew that. The writers and scriptures use that, and they use that tool, and John uses it here. John is also here pointing us back to Jesus's words. Jesus taught about several types of love in his ministry on earth that we can read in the Gospels. He taught about love for God. He taught about love for our neighbor, love for the stranger, love for our enemies, love for the least of these, family love, and then he also taught on love for one another. So I'm going to just read from John 13, 34, where Jesus talks about that last type of love. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. When Jesus said this, the topic of love was not entirely new, of course. Love is mentioned in the Old Testament. But as David Guzik, oh, sorry, my screen skipped ahead and I've got a quote. <laughs> as David Guzik said in his commentary on 1 John, the new commandment to love that Jesus spoke of was really new for several reasons. One of the most important reasons was that Jesus displayed a kind of love never seen before, a love that we were to imitate, displayed. Jesus came to us and gave us an example to follow. So that was different. God hadn't done that before. Guzik goes on to say, the cross points in four different directions to show that the love of Jesus is wide enough to include every human being, long enough to last through all eternity, deep enough to reach the most guilty sinner, and high enough to take us to heaven. It's also different in that Jesus has changed our hearts, our hearts, uh, uh, their hearts too, the readers' hearts as well, and has empowered us to love, which hadn't been seen before. Jesus reinforces the command in a, a couple chapters later, John 15, 12, where he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. There are a lot of commandments in the Bible, 
thousands, in fact, even in the New Testament alone. But Jesus is claiming this one. This is my commandment. And it's just as important as the ones that God wrote on stone tablets with his own hand. How seriously do we take this commandment? Do we take it as seriously as the commandment not to steal, for example, or not to murder? Do we take love as seriously as those things? Do you think we can routinely break this commandment? Is love on your mind when you come to church? Is it on your mind now? Of course it is, because I'm preaching about it, right? (laughs) But is it normally when you come to church on Sunday? Why do we come to church? For fantastic praise music, uh, good preaching, um, because it's our habit or custom. I've been going to church since I was born, so it's kind of a custom. Um, but Or is our attendance rooted in loving relationships with our brothers and sisters in this body of believers where we are today? John points to Jesus not only as the author of this command, but as the example. Jesus demonstrates love when he washes the disciples' feet, and then ultimately when he dies on the cross for us. So the next verse John contrasts love with an example of hate. Verse 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was jealous of Abel. Jealousy turned to hatred and hatred to murder. Don't be Cain, don't follow Cain's example. But we learn something from Abel here as well, and that's how we can expect to be treated. Do not be surprised, my brother, if the world hates you. It could almost say, do not be surprised if the word hates you as well, or also. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Both brought sacrifices to God. Cain, he was a farmer of crops, and he brought some of the fruits of his soil as a sacrifice to God. Abel was a shepherd, and he brought fat portions for some of the, from some of the firstborn of his flock. God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Abel was innocent, not in the sense that he was perfect and had never done anything wrong. Cain and Abel are brothers. They've probably had some sibling rivalry, right? Anyone who is a sibling or has children who are siblings know that siblings argue, compete, and so on, right? But he was innocent in in this sense that he had just brought his sacrifice in order to worship God the best that he could. He wasn't trying to upstage his brother. And then he was murdered for it. We also can be innocent as a church and as believers in this sense, and then earn the hatred of the world. And John is just saying, don't be surprised by him. Bless you. (laughs) John is actually repeating here something that Jesus said as well. In John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So the world hated Jesus. 
The world hated Jesus so much that he was also murdered as Abel was, and he was entirely innocent. There is no blame in him, and he responds with forgiveness. Even though the world may hate us, and that can be a hard message to hear, it's also worth noting that our love for one another can draw people to Jesus as well when they see our deep, genuine love and care for one another. So we want to continue in that love in order that Jesus can draw people to himself. Moving to verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. We know this concept of new life, don't we? Being a new creation or creature, being born again. If you love your fellow Christians, this is a sure sign that you have been born again. If not, your your salvation may be questionable, or, or at least where you are with God. We see it time and time again through people's testimonies and from our own, how we were like Cain, jealous, angry, murderous, but God changes our hearts to have a new desire to love and to have a new capacity to love. Verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. John isn't saying here that a murderer cannot become a Christian. We we probably know that that's not true. But he's talking about a destructive pattern of hatred in our lives. Someone who sort of dwells or abides in hatred. They can't have eternal life. So after this, do you see how important that love is? The next question is, do you see the cross-centered nature of love, of this love? Verse 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Wow, we know what this love is. John points us to the cross. Cain's hatred led to murder, and Jesus' love leads to self-sacrifice. He loves you, church. Jesus loves you. Isn't this great news? It's so important to clarify what this love is. And why? Because there are different types of love, and culture can skew our perception of love. Firstly, I want to talk about some different types of love. And this is where English does us a big disservice because we use one word for love where there were four ancient Greek words. So we're kind of disadvantaged here with our language. So the first love that would have been used in in the Gospels was eros, which described erotic or sexual love. Storge was the second word for love. This referred to family love, like love between a parent and a child or another member of our related family. Philia is like one, like the love you would have for a close friend, your best friend or, or, or group of friends. But in 1 John, John is using the word agape. Quoting again from biblical scholar David Guzik, agape described a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. 
It is a love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is a love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. We often call this unconditional love, right? Culture can further per pervert the meaning of love beyond the scope of even eros, storge, and philia. A lot of people think, especially today, that love is tolerant, tolerance, that we cannot contradict or disagree with another person. But we can speak the truth in love. We can disagree and not hate the person we disagree with. Right? <laughs> Our culture today really seems to struggle with this one. Our culture also has a diminished or weakened view of love. We use the word love for everything. I love coffee. I love hiking. I love going to my cottage. I love pizza, right? <laughs> it becomes almost a meaningless word. Then we turn around and tell our spouse that we love them. Hopefully we love them differently than coffee and hiking and pizza or one of the other billion things that we love. Others believe in a Hallmark or Disney fairy tale kind of love. It's very sentimental and caught up in a particular feeling, butterflies in your stomach sort of thing, right? People fall in and out of love. It's not constant or unconditional or lasting. John doesn't let us doubt for one second what type of love he's talking about. It's not a feeling. It's not just about being nice. It's about the cross. When other writers in the New Testament urge us to love people, they also point to the cross and Jesus's example. Does Paul say, husbands, love your wives as much as you love golfing? I don't think so, right? Sean? <laughs> no, he writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this love, it's an action. Jesus didn't just say, I love you. He showed us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If the cross is our example, if we know what love is because of the cross, we can't just think of love as a feeling. Love is an action. Love as a feeling doesn't help anyone. What if we were to say, dear poor people of the world, we love you. Does that help them? Doesn't help them at all, right? There has to be an action behind that. Cross-centered love, it does something. Jesus did something. And if we really love people, we will do something. Question number three is where I will say the rubber meets the road. Are you practically demonstrating love? We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Love by sacrifice. It's quite interesting to me that this comes from John. Do you remember what John and his brother James were called? They were called Sons of Thunder. That was their nickname. How do you think they got that nickname? Does thunder give you the warm fuzzies? 
Maybe not, right? You might like storms, but I don't think thunder ever really makes us feel comfortable. This week we had a few storms and I noticed that thunder often was the first thing you noticed was you could hear a rumble of thunder coming. It's warning of what's to come. So if you're called a son of thunder or a daughter of thunder, chances are you're not the nicest guy or girl. You probably have a temper. In Luke 9.54, Jesus and his disciples were heading to Jerusalem through Samaria. Jesus sent messengers ahead of them to a Samaritan village where they wished to stay for the night. However, that village didn't want to welcome them. When James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? That's a pretty severe response, right? To not, not getting a welcome. Their response was sudden and angry, not at all loving. But John's older now when he writes this, and he's writing about love. In 1 John, he uses the word love 46 times. My husband, who couldn't be here because our daughter is sick, is convinced that I should be referencing pop culture in my sermons, particularly Marvel and superheroes. So do we have Marvel and superhero fans? Steve's pumping a fist back there. <laughs> so this, is what, this one's for my husband. The new Thor movie is called Thor, Love and Thunder. I think we should recognize that John is the original son of love and thunder. So there, you got my pop, pop culture reference for the day. What about the Apostle Peter? Jesus brought about a change in him too. He goes from cutting off people's ears to exhorting believers to love each other earnestly. That's a big change. So there's hope for us. John, Peter, Paul, because of Jesus and his example on the cross, they transform from angry, hateful men to men who live lives of loving sacrifice. Two of the three are martyred for their faith. They're poor, at least financially from the world's perspective. John is exiled to Patmos. Also important to note is sacrifice doesn't necessarily mean we go down in a dramatic blaze of glory. So we're not all going to be martyred, are we? Probably not, unless something dramatic happens here in, in the world soon. But John Stott noted that the word used for laid down and lay down in verse 16 is the same word used when Jesus took off his outer garment in John 13, 4. So I'm going to quote Stott. It seems to imply not so much the laying down as the laying aside of something like clothes. You can put you can take off your clothes, strip down to your bathing suit, and go swimming, right? We can be prepared to die for one another, and I, I think we should, but sacrifice can be much more ordinary, like setting aside pride to mend a relationship with someone in the church that we might have had a disagreement with, or putting others ahead of ourselves daily, our children, our spouse, Getting up at 5 a.m. to take a church member to the hospital when clearly you're a night owl and have no business being up at that time. During the pandemic, it was wearing a mask to keep others safe, staying home. We set aside what, um, what we would like 
for others. A love of sacrifice. John goes on to describe also a love of generosity. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? At this point, John shifts from using the plural words brothers to the singular. It can be easy to say, I love people, and extroverts in particular have no issue with this. I'm an extrovert, so I love people. I love to hang out with people. Uh, I married an introvert who might not find it as easy to say, I love people. But in that general sense, I love people can be easy to say, say. But can you put a face to it? Are there people, individuals that you're loving, and how are you loving them? G.P. Lewis said, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are, are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. So it's just this everyday, ordinary acts of love with the people around us and having, yeah, putting, putting actions behind your words. Verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Does this somehow sound too simplistic to you? It can kind of sound that way, right? Love, love one another. It can sound pretty easy. But biblical scholar D.A. Carson said the following, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, this is in some ways such a simple command, but it can also be difficult. Uh, there are people around us that may confound and exasperate us. Uh, we might live with them, we might attend church with them, we may work with them, uh, and God, love can be difficult. And it can also be difficult to love in a sacrificial way, to give when someone else has need. Uh, Father, you came and died for us to set an ultimate example of how we are to love. But not only that, but you empower us to love. You give us that capacity where we might not naturally have it. And God, I just pray for, for each one in this room that when we come to this place, that there would be a deep connection with those around us, ways to show that we love, even if it's listening for more than, how are you? I'm fine. If it's really listening to where the person is at. Father, I just pray that we would take advantage of those opportunities to love and also to be loved, to receive that love from one another. And Father, thank you for your word, which is constantly uh, 
instructing us and teaching us. And God, just pray that um, we would take every opportunity as well to be in your word and learning these things, the commands that you have for us and, and the signs that we abide in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.